Very warm welcome to uh, the LSC tonight. Uh, my name's Charlie Beckett. I'm director of POLIS, which is uh, the LSE's journalism think tank based in the Department of Media and Communications uh, here at the LSE. Um, tonight's uh, lecture is uh, of particular interest to those of us who care about journalism and its future, but I think there'll be some lessons for anybody who is trying to uh, think about or indeed create uh, a media business and make it work in what is an incredibly dynamic and very competitive digital world. So I hope of interest to anybody from any kind of media background in some ways. But it's true, The Guardian itself is different. Perhaps you think of uh, The Guardian as a group of people as sort of organic, quinoa-chewing... <laughs> knee-jerk, left-wing, metrosexuals. <laughs> Perhaps you do. But whatever you make of its culture or politics, uh, it is a really fascinating uh, news model, and one that I've taken a lot of interest in over the last few years. Uh, it was, of course, one of the first uh, newspapers to go digital in a big way, and it's continued to uh, innovate very creatively online. Only this week I was uh, in the newsroom of a, a top British tabloid newspaper and the chief executive there told me that he thought that The Guardian, uh, their web offering, is still uh, the best around. And this week it has indeed, by at least one measure, surpassed the New York Times globally online. But for me, the, uh, the future of The Guardian really matters for journalistic diversity, uh, firstly, because of its model uh, of networked or open or mutual journalism. Journalism that tries, at least, to be transparent, interactive, working with as well as for its readership. And secondly, I think uh, the future of The Guardian really matters because the kind of journalism that leads to government officials coming into your newsroom and smashing up your hard drive really matters. The Snowden and the phone hacking uh, revelations were against the establishment grain. They were incredibly brave and they were agenda setting. And I think that we need much more of that in, the feature, in our future of you know, big data and possibly big brother. But newspapers in particular and journalism in general are famously in financial crisis, and that includes The Guardian, which, despite its odd ownership structure, still has bills to pay. And this man knows about the bills. So who did The Guardian turn to when it needed to uh, solve or address and reverse, indeed, that £40-50 million annual loss that it was enduring? Perhaps they would turn to some kind of hipster geek guru from Silicon Valley. Perhaps they'd turn to a financial wizard from Wall Street or a slick corporate guru from the city of London. No, they chose an accountant reared in Scotland who used to work for a company that made soap. I personally think it was a really good choice, but you can judge for yourself. Please give a warm welcome to the Chief Executive Officer of Guardian Media Group, Andrew Miller. Um, thanks, Charlie. Um, much appreciated. I am a Scottish accountant. I am proud of that fact as well. Um, I'm also um, a Guardian-loving metrosexual as well. And... Um, <laughs> In, in that context, I'd like to thank you coming here tonight because I know you had a choice, I was looking at Twitter earlier, of Hugh Masekela, or um, you could have gone to our, one of our membership events with Russell Brand tonight. So I'm afraid with the choice of these, you've gone for me. So thank you very much for coming along. So, so Charlie, I'd like to thank you again for, um, and the LSE for this opportunity to speak to you all tonight and to answer your questions. I'm really delighted to be here. And I've been to several Polis conferences over the years, and I really admire the work that you do. And it's no coincidence that many of the people here, I'm sure, will 
if not become the best and brightest of media, but certainly in that group, along with many of your predecessors who have been here before. So today I want to talk about um, the world's fast-changing media industry and how it's embracing that change and how it's endeavouring to survive in the digital age. As as a chief, chief executive of the Guardian Media Group, and before that in my time at Trader Media Group, I'm lucky enough to have witnessed at um, close hand the threats, but also the amazing opportunities that the digital changes we're going through give us all. So tonight I want to share my thoughts on what I believe media content owners and distributors must do to succeed in transforming the marketplace we're in, and I'll try to offer some new, fresh thinking on the competitive landscape and what we should also do about market distortion. But before that, let me give you some context of the industry I'm in. So, to me, the phrase new media or digital is so last century now. Fifteen years ago, digital was pretty new, but it's not anymore. Um, Now you can find just about any content you might be looking for on one digital platform or another. From the Bible to Bieber, it's all just a few clicks away. (laughs) And at The Guardian, like so many media groups, being first was usually about getting the scoop being the first to find a piece of news and get the piece of news. But in the last decade, being first in media has often meant being first to publish the news. And that shift from getting the story in to racing to get the story out and sharing it has really prompted what's close to an arms race in digital um, technology. And I'm really proud to say that before my time, The Guardian was one of the first news organisations to really recognise the need for radical change in this industry and technology. And the very newspaper groups who initially criticised our digital first strategy only four years ago are now unveiling their own digital first strategies. And that's an irony sometimes not lost to me. And that said, even the term digital first feels anachronistic now. It's time really for us to reinvent ourselves again and be something much more than that. But even before we started grappling with digital disruption, newspapers that failed to transition failed full stop. And it's not a new trend that was around with digital only, but digital was merely a twinkle in our eyes if a newspaper purely in paper format didn't have the right content, the right advertising appeal, or the right consumer proposition, it disappeared. So just as now, it's the relevance of the journalism that really matters. Remember the Sunday correspondent, the European, the Today newspaper? They weren't killed off by digital disruption of the internet age. They died because they couldn't produce content that consumers wanted to read and therefore they couldn't sell advertising that generated revenues. So some of these newspapers have come and gone, and there have been numerous obituaries written about the newspaper industry, particularly concerning local papers um, especially. Some of these predictions have been precipitous, others will prove more or less prophetic. But I'm glad to say that some titles are navigating the transition, and they have evolved. So what's the secret of survival? Why are some making it and some aren't? Well, Perhaps the most important step of all has been to go way beyond the confines of a printed edition and to embrace how readers actually now get their news, to follow readers relentlessly and to keep up with the many different ways in which they're embracing new technology. We learned early on that it doesn't matter what distribution platform you use, whether it's dead trees or fibre optic cable, what's most important now is the quality of the journalism that people want to read and also ensuring that it's available exactly when and the need state and how people want to consume it, so journalism and how they want to consume it. And that's what, completely different area, but I really learned at Autotrader. Do you remember titles like Exchange of Mart or Loot? They could have done exactly the same things and taken bold decisions that we took at Autotrader and gone down the same route as Autotrader, but they didn't, and now they've both disappeared from, from from the world. And it's like Groundhog Day in this this job, with with similar patterns in the new space being played out again. It's not just a simple case of digitising what we did before and assuming if you throw it up that people will then read it as they always did. It's much, much more complex than that. And it's very hard, and the very strategy we're following is being open. Being open is a core principle that everyone at The Guardian shares. It drives everything we do, and it goes even back to the values that C.P. Scott set out in 1921. It's the idea that as a news, organiza- a news organization can give a better account of the world by harnessing the unleashed power of a world in which everyone can publish. Being open to the extraordinary democratizing technologies of our age instead of walling ourselves off from them. It's this commitment to being open and transparent that enables us to forge a dialogue with our readers, 
We can give a better account of the world if we encourage more interaction with readers or viewers, and that's the way we're consuming everything anyway. At The Guardian, we have over 100 million, 110 million unique browsers one every month, with almost 43 million desktop visitors a month. We're now the number one quality English language digital newspaper in the world, overtaking the New York Times just last month. Across all platforms, we regularly get more than 6 million visitors, 8 million visits and 20 million page views each and every day. Yesterday's traffic, we had 7 million um, visitors yesterday. Over 60,000 readers a day comment on our coverage. And today's readers can correct, clarify and challenge the things our journalists write. It's not a one-way street anymore. Open takes the walls down between journalists and readers. It gives a richer picture of the world by collaborating with new digital landscape, not fighting it. It recognises that publishing is the beginning of the story, not the end anymore. The apps we develop, the websites we design, the commercial initiatives we launch, everything we do happens in the open. Open recognises that our journalists are not the only voices of expertise and authority. We all learn more and we all become better informed in the open. So because of that, we see the likes of Google, Twitter, Facebook and other social platforms as our partners and collaborators, not the destroyers of everything we hold dear. We welcome the mutual benefits such relationships bring, but there are health warnings and I'll talk about them shortly. We're also not somehow committing ourselves to open for philanthropic reasons. There is a clear commercial rationale behind it too. Imagine if we'd anchored ourselves back in time to a paywall when we sold 200,000 newspapers a day. We simply could never have had the scale to survive, let alone thrive in the digital age. By being open source, digitally interactive, and a home for new forms of journalism, The Guardian is able to build a larger, more valuable global readership than would have ever been possible otherwise, in turn using this open model to create a sustainable business model. And it works. Since we put open at the heart of our business and editorial strategy, our revenues are up, our engagement is up, our global readership is up, we've got a deeper and broader advertising base than ever before. And it's an advertising readership base who come to The Guardian because of this belief in the power of open and in the power of our journalism. So let me be very clear, open is the source and the driver of the digital, commercial and editorial transformation It's absolutely here to stay. In my view, those that fail to adapt to, adapt, adapt to this do so at their peril. Our marketplace is crowded with lively new sites, although some are very fragile. You've got BuzzFeed, Quartz, Upworthy, HuffPo, Political. They are, they are all changing the way news is being produced, distributed and consumed. And they're all open. A new ecosystem is emerging of online journalism. We must deal with it and be a part of it. And we at The Guardian are incredibly well-placed to do this. We've got the institutional strength, heritage and know-how of a 200-year-old organisation, the versatility, thinking and ambition of a digital startup, one shareholder, the Scott Trust, which is dedicated only to the long-term integrity of The Guardian, a growing global readership. We've got $1 billion in reserves, a company built on profound and sincere values and one of the most powerful and desirable brands in the world. It's a great combination. So now as we approach our 200th anniversary, not a 10th, not a 20th, 200th anniversary, we will use this unique offering to become more relevant than ever by covering stories in greater depth, with greater data and greater impact than the new challenger set, all backed up by significant investment in our journalism. Our ambition is to make our journalism as widely available and engaging to users of any technology, of any platform, in any country across the world. Remember, it's about following the reader. And as we keep finding, every time we push, we keep finding more readers who really value our unique, open approach to digital storytelling. My task as CEO is twofold. One, to ensure that The Guardian's journalism can flourish in perpetuity in this crowded digital marketplace. And two, to ensure that over time, that journalism develops a self-sustaining business around it. As our results show, we are achieving that. We are successfully increasing advertising revenue and will continue to do so. But we also recognise that the digital advertising model alone is not yet developed enough to fully fund our journalism. We're realistic. As a result, we also have to monetize our readers directly by giving them extra value, not by charging for access through a paywall. And that's what Guardian membership means. It's that access, but not through a paywall. 
It's a radical rethinking of the future role that news organisations can play in communities, societies and networks, and that's far more exciting than shoring up subscription models and paywalls. Hundreds of events, communities, discussions, debates, networks, platforms all around the world where the conversations we have with our readers and the conversations our readers have with other readers can take on thousands of new lives on their own. It fosters engagement, encourages loyalty and thrives on the concept of openness. To repeat, there is a business imperative too and it's founded in core guardian principles. You can pay to be a member or you can become a member simply in return for giving us some basic information about yourself. Either way, the same values apply. Our membership scheme exists to promote open journalism. Our journalism remains open and free, and the free membership tier means that our events are open to everyone too. No barrier, no subscription, no paywall. It's not the only area where The Guardian is consciously disrupting the business of journalism. I'm very proud to announce today that we have just signed a new three-year agreement with the Gates Foundation to support our journalism on global development too. And that builds on the relationship we've had with the Gates Foundation over several years. The new agreement will support the work of the core team as they cover the field of development and continue to build a global community. It recognises that Guardian has become one of the most influential sources of information on this topic in the world. In addition, the new funding will be set aside for special projects that can shine a light on development issues for more mainstream readership. And this grant complements relationships we already have in place with other foundations such as Rockefeller, Open Society, Humanity United and Ford, among others. And these, in turn, allow us to do stories like FGM, Qatar Slaves, Thai Slavery, and they show their high respect in which our journalism is held by leading institutions around the world. And they show the successful integration of independent, transparent foundation funding as part of our commercial mix. So that's the part of the strategy that we and the business model we can directly influence. And it would be wonderful if we were the sole masters of our destiny. The truth is, however, there are many forces here to work, which, which, which no matter how well we work our own business models, really have the ability to knock us off course. And let me focus on a few key ones now. As the web celebrates its 25th birthday this year, one of the greatest concerns I have as CEO of a growing global digital content business is safeguarding the openness of the web and access to Guardian journalism. Under the editorship of Alan Rushbridger, the open web has helped transform the Guardian from the ninth biggest newspaper in the world to the number one quality English language newspaper website in the world. And this has been made possible thanks to the open, interconnected nature of the web, which has made the Guardian's journalism available on the global newsstand that is the World Wide Web. So I'll say three things in the future of that open web and continued access to it. First, at a time when we're seeing our journalism mature from text and pictures to now much richer audiovisual content and live blogs, we're also seeing increasing efforts on both sides of the Atlantic to manage the web and the way consumers access content on it. There's no better example than, of this right now than the controversy in the US around the FCC's ongoing deliberations as to whether it should legislate for net neutrality or allow content and connectivity providers to strike commercial deals over paid prioritisation. With the rise of huge players such as Netflix and this week's announcement that HBO and CBS are to launch streaming services, it is essential that we have strong regulation in place in the US and the EU that prevents the carve-up of the web. Otherwise, the web will simply over time become the digital equivalent of a pay TV platform. And this isn't simply an issue for content creators. Restricting access to markets and territories would push smaller companies and startups to a best efforts type internet. The resulting poor quality of service would fundamentally undermine the opportunity for UK businesses to provide a whole range of products and services to find new global markets. Second, one of the issues I'm deeply passionate about is ensuring that our young people have access to the jobs that are helping create the open web and this new digital economy. I see the lack of digital skills in the UK as a structural threat to the continued growth of the digital economy here. I could do a separate lecture on, around the lack of digital skills, but as a business that relies on technology for our present and our future, let me say the war for digital talent is absolutely real. At The Guardian, we, we just did the graduate round last year. We had 400 applicants for one graduate finance place, but we had 10 applicants for 14 engineering ones. We're competing with the likes of Google, Facebook, Twitter and LinkedIn, not to mention the Mail, the Telegraph, the BBC and others to recruit and retain talent that can take our business to the next level. 
through our digital trainee scheme, we're bringing the brightest graduates into the business and training them up. And they don't necessarily come from digital backgrounds, but we do need more of them and we need it quickly. Otherwise, our engineering will be done offshore, not in the UK as it is now. Over the past few months, we've shared our experiences of this issue with the UK Digital Skills Task Force and the ongoing House of Lords inquiry, and hope that at the next general election, all parties will have a coherent strategy to educate our young people to ensure that we have a pool of top digital talent to help British businesses succeed in the world stage. The third issue is a bit closer to home. It's about the rise and rise of the technology juggernauts. So as the volume of our traffic increasingly comes from social sharing, yesterday 40% of our traffic came from social sharing, we enjoy working with the likes of Google, Facebook and Twitter. But I absolutely have concerns about the size and the influence they wield. Many of our counterparts across Europe are currently focused on prosecuting the case against Google's alleged abuse of its dominant position in search. But Google, Twitter and Facebook are global companies, and it's not surprising, therefore, they're acting in ways which favour their own interests. They also all sit within a strong EU framework around competition, which means competition authorities can seek remedies if necessary and will rightly and should impose them. But my caution to the EU and policymakers is to really reflect on these frameworks and to consider whether, how, if they can be really effective when the internet really has no regard for international boundaries or, or geographic countries. These companies are really beyond the reach of most national regulators, let alone regional regulators. Supranational companies need supranational regulators, a responsibility which obviously, of course, ultimately falls to the EU. So the EU needs to think carefully and for the long term about what appropriate regulation looks like. It needs to prepare the EU's digital economy for the future, not to protect the EU economy of the past. Knee-jerk reactions that simply placate local publishing interests risk Europe being bypassed or closed off from the many, many benefits these companies offer us. So any action must be taken in conjunction with other governments, otherwise Europe really does risk becoming a digital backwater. But on the flip side, these digital distributors cannot escape their editorial responsibilities either. Editing on these platforms will become more and more essential in order to avoid dangerous, damaging, inflammatory material from being treated as legitimate information. It's happening now. Twitter trolling, the rise of the bullies, Facebook making changes to its gender selection option, BuzzFeed having to apologise for plagiarism, whether you're a legacy franchise, a philanthropic digital, or to put it bluntly, a startup that's maybe for sale, every media company is having to wake up to the harsh realities that face them. Newspapers have spent well over 100 years honing these essential skills and experience, and they cost money. More than that, are these companies being somewhat disingenuous? Or on the one hand, they want to be open and agnostic platforms for the distribution of content, with the cost infrastructure, though, of being digital. On the other hand, they make the majority of their revenues from media-related advertising. I think they need to be more candid about what they want to be, platforms without any responsibility, or media companies with the organisational framework in place to make big editorial decisions. If they are media companies, and I think they are, then by necessity they can accept the revenues that brings, but they also need to accept more of the responsibility created by the necessary regulation that entails. Irrespective of those points, there are also things we must do at a UK level. And in British media, we have a global player that is truly dominant, the BBC. In our fast-changing industry, the time has come really now to address and remedy the implications of BBC dominance. But I want to preface this whole passage by saying that The Guardian is hugely supportive of the vital and unique role that the BBC plays in British life. It is an enormous national asset one of our most important and one of our most treasured. It is the embodiment of many of the social and cultural values that make Britain great. So I want to be very clear, the Guardian sees the BBC as a friend. (laughs) But, be that as may, commercial news brands of all shapes and sizes have expressed concerns about the role of the BBC in the digital world. Whether it's the inexplicable acquisition of Lonely Lonely Planet or the rise of Glossy Magazine Publishing, we've seen all sorts of worrying BBC commercial sorties. And here's a new example, only two weeks old. The BBC's recent decision to expand its Australian operation. The BBC claims this expansion is because it believes giving Australians what they value is a core part of its mission. I would respectfully disagree. 
The Guardian is one of a relatively small number of commercial British news organisations that is building on its existing base of Australian readers. We are investing significant resources in high-quality journalism that connects the views of Australians to global debates on a wide range of important issues from climate change to immigration. Contrary to the BBC's assertions, there is a, this is a space that both editorially and commercially The Guardian does very much share with the BBC's commercial activities. Australia already is, a, is already a diverse and highly competitive market. As such, the BBC's expansion into Australia goes beyond its public service remit. More than that, it doesn't benefit UK licence fee payers or meet the requirement of the BBC to provide news in parts of the world where there are limited alternatives. It threatens a distortion that is not in the interests of audiences or other UK news providers. In the evolving digital world, the certainty of revenue streams has been replaced by the need for experimentation. As a commercial company, I therefore look with envy at the relatively certain funding that the licensee provides the BBC. From my perspective, then, as CEO of The Guardian, the question has never been about how we straightjacket the BBC or how we give it a good kicking. Instead, it's about how we harness and benefit from the BBC's excellence at home and abroad. Ofcom's latest data on news consumption shows that the BBC retains a central position in the lives of UK citizens of all ages, whether via radio, TV, online or apps. And that, to me, is something to build on, not destroy. But I would set this provocative exam question. How does a body that doesn't have to worry about its funding constructively support those of us British news brands that really do? The way the BBC links out from news is a much-discussed and well-trodden path. In 2011, the BBC was challenged by the Trust to increase the number of external referrals it generates to other sites. However, figures produced by the Trust in its latest annual report show that's nearly 25% off target. There are many things the BBC could do to increase the prominence of these links and to increase the size, the frequency and prominence of links to to all commercial sites, especially where those commercial sites are the source of the stories. But there are also creative ways in which links to the best of the commercial news content could be used to enrich the BBC services too. So, for example, imagine if you could see Charlie Brooker's uh, latest review of Nordic Noir or Niche US Import on your iPlayer, giving licence fee pairs suggestions on what to watch next. However, however, as I said, BBC links and click-throughs is a debate that's happened over several years and it does feel like yesterday's news. Today's news is video the need for video content has become an integral part of the news flow is more important than ever. All commercial news sites are working hard to harness the many possibilities it offers. And this is a trend we recognise and embracing at The Guardian. That's why we're investing more in video this year than ever before. But even though we have a strong network of journalists working in some of the world's most perilous locations, we will never have the funding to create an audiovisual network on the scale and quality of the BBC. The BBC's world-class network of international journalists and digital natives is a national resource that has at its core the vital values of impartial and authoritative analysis. And one of the BBC's own non-exec directors, Sir Howard Stringer, said the BBC must do more to offer up its video content, and I agree. So let me float this idea. What if uh, UK commercial content providers such as The Guardian, The Mail Online, The Telegraph or The Times were able to access the raw news feeds coming in from court cases, raw weddings, key select committees, and other global breaking news events. What if Andrew Sparrow's live blog yesterday, or a few days ago, could also have live feeds from from BBC feeds into into the blog as well? The BBC should also think about how content providers can tap into its unrival back catalogue too, to create new content that the BBC doesn't have the time, inclination, or expertise to create. Imagine if we were doing a music retrospective and could pull on that BBC content to enrich the, um, the retrospective in a video format as well as the written format we currently do. It's this new digital space, public space, for publicly owned content that's often been a fiction, a new digital public space that I hope the Director General will now turn into a fact. And it wouldn't sit on a third-party website. It would be available to all UK commercial providers to use on their websites to enrich their content and to benefit their readers. Where there's clear commercial value, especially in territories in which we compete with the BBC for advertising revenues, that content would come at a cost along the same lines of the, as the agreement the BBC currently has with its own commercial news service. Where there's no commercial value, it should be made freely available for national, local, 
and hyper-local organisations to, 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 to explore as well. Imagine how you can enhance, can enhance local journalism with video content feeds from the BBC in that space too. It would mean more detailed storytelling. It would reinforce the BBC's place as an authoritative global, global news source. It would also provide commercial news brands with the opportunity to innovate around content that we've all funded anyway through the licence fee. I strongly believe that a genuinely reinvigorated partnership between the BBC and the UK commercial news brands would benefit all of us. Not least because commercial news brands are often the driving force in shaping the news agenda in a way the BBC can't or won't. MPs' expenses, Snowden, Stephen Lawrence story, phone hacking, corruption at the World Cup. It's the long-term investment in great journalists by the commercial sector which provides the BBC and all of us with critically important stories. It is in everyone's interest that the investment in such stories can continue. My suggestion strengthens and develops the relationship between the BBC and the UK's commercial publishers. It promotes the BBC's content abroad. It gives the BBC additional exposure in dollars. It creates a level playing field between us and the BBC's commercial news arm. And it allows other publishers, all of whom could clearly have to sign commercial terms, additional content and collateral. British Telecom's dominance obliged it to wholesale its network to competitors. So too the BBC's dominance should oblige it to wholesale the assets it has built up using public funds to commercialise to commercial competitors too. Whether it's through more external links, the BBC must continue to take its audience out into other worlds of opinion rather than the impartial world that sits in today. And by taking a much more radical approach to news content syndication, it must allow the world of opinion to be based on the BBC's authoritative fact. Let me stress, this is about how we build on and grow the strength and value of the BBC, how we pr further protect and enshrine it. In essence, it's also an argument for keeping media polarity at the heart of the democratic life of this country. So back to the newspapers again. Some newspapers are on life support. Others are in, in intensive care, but for many of the reasons I've already outlined, I'm glad to say that we're not one of them. Last year, two-thirds of our 210 million of revenues came from print, from the Guardian and Observer newspaper. We've recently revamped and refreshed our print offering and committed substantial marketing spend to support it, and the newspaper remains a vital asset. People may claim that our print readership is dwindling. It's actually holding up very well. The Guardian was the best-performing daily title in January to March this year. And don't forget, The Guardian is now the most read quality English-language digital newspaper in the world. Some may claim as well that we are trust-funded. We are. But we're also as commercially driven as any of our competitors, some of, whom, though, some of whom, though purely commercial, have lost larger sums of money than us, as they too make this difficult transition from print to digital. But our unique ownership model means that I don't have to worry about returning funds to our shareholders or pay any dividends. We can afford to take the long view and play the long game, and we can do so safe in the knowledge that The Guardian has the time, the freedom, and the opportunities that so few of our competitors really enjoy. And getting from A to B, which has been described many times internally as rebuilding the plane while it's in mid-flight, is an expensive business. You can't deny that fact. And I'm proud that we're investing in the journalism and the technology and the talent to get us there. The Scott Trust is not a rich company with bottomless pockets, but it does enable us to at least get on the same level playing field as other media giants. And that's not to say we're immune to the threats facing our industry. The threats are real and they are significant. But I believe that the shift to digital has created many more opportunities than risks. Our sense of opportunity is based on the landscape that has evolved from the very first phase of digitization. An ecosystem now is emerging for the creation, distribution, and consumption of news media. And it is a painful learning curve. It's meant multiple closures, cutthroat competition, scandals, financial losses, regulatory turmoil, and fast-changing commercial models. I mean, just think about it. Remember, five years ago, tablets and apps were a mere sort of pip inside Apple. Today, we might even argue that, I think there's data saying that we might have hit peak tablet consumption. Three years ago only, a fraction of our traffic came from mobile users. Now, consistently, 40% of our traffic comes through a smartphone device. 50% of our traffic comes through search and social. Even this week, the, the CEO of Cisco pre predicted that in 10 years' time, about 40% of US-listed companies 
will become disrupted by the new internet of things. So given the speed of change, it's impossible to pretend to know all the answers and to predict which technology or device will emerge as the dominant one. It's a fool's errand to try and define what's going to work purely by device or technology. Rupert Murdoch learned that the hard way, both with the overpriced acquisition of MySpace and the closed tablet-only newspaper, The Daily. The principal learning from The Daily is that it's not enough just to have smart distribution and a powerful backer. You fundamentally need smart and powerful journalism that isn't just good, but also has a stance, a value system, a spine. And that journalism needs to be agnostic about its distribution platform and needs to follow the reader wherever he or she may be. More than that, content companies like us need to repeat again and again and again, is the content stupid? We are not technology companies, and nor should we ever pretend to be. The irony, of course, is that in today's media world, there is more content than ever before, but there is a shortage of real quality content. There are also more journalists filing stories than ever before, 5,500 digital startup platforms, but there is a shortage of quality, independent journalism. And that is what sets The Guardian apart. We are platform neutral, but we are passionate about quality and independence. And we know better than anyone what our readers want. And so we look to define ourselves by our readership and by the unique aspects of our storytelling, regardless of device. And I want to tell you how we follow our readers and how they will define our future. Historically, an audience focus was not the determining factor in our marketplace. As traditional businesses got to grips with digital, bets were based on the fact that either content or distribution was king. Then, at the turn of the decade, a new realisation dawned. It was neither content nor distribution. Devices and platforms are suddenly the new kingmakers, and they put the reader in control. At The Guardian, we take a different view. Neither distribution nor devices will decide our future, although both are very important. Our future depends on producing quality journalism that is relevant to quality readers. And by quality, I mean something that is distinctive, authentic, and of course also commercially valuable. And you can't do that by algorithms or a couple of journalists or dog on a website. Take the Snowden story as an example. Pulitzer Prize winning journalism at its very best. Experienced editors, journalists and reporters, absolutely. But also brilliant lawyers, IT experts, communications professionals, robust corporate infrastructure and very, very deep pockets. None of that can, is to be underestimated in this new digital landscape. That is why producing quality news is expensive, no matter what many of the new innovators choose to believe. Throughout, one thing has remained constant. We have continued to invest in quality journalism. The Guardian has maintained its commitment to deliver accurate, incisive and relevant news to our readers. And they're no longer just readers. They're viewers, they're listeners, they're multi-active, hyperactive, users of digital devices. They are members, they're journalistic contributors, for instance, through our award-winning Guardian Witness Initiative. They're loyal, they attract advertising, they're discerning in the news appetites, and they are extremely valuable. They are also having people like you or me. That is why The Guardian has always believed that the reader is king. Everything we do, everything we distribute, everything we sell must be uniquely Guardian if it is to be valued by global 21st century readers. So let me set out how the Guardian Media Group is adapting to this world. And also why in this world that readership is key to our survival. When I became Guardian Chief, GMG Chief Exec four years ago, we were beginning to respond aggressively to the needs of our readership that was increasingly sourcing news online. Back then, the BBC was also in the vanguard of digital content, pulling readers away from printed newspapers. Media commentators were openly discussing the demise of The Guardian, and on that basis, they were understandably looking at us through the lens of being the ninth biggest paper in Fleet Street, or the second smallest. Four years ago, as platform sales declined and we were hit by the sudden loss of classified revenues, I warned about the oversupply of newspapers and the dominance of the BBC, I said that unless we took decisive, tough action to invest in digital, we might struggle to survive. We have, I'm pleased to say, overcome elements of that threat through our own self-help measures. We've improved the fortunes of The Guardian through our five-year transformation programme. And those same media commentators, and even more importantly our clients, now judge us through the lens of being the most read, quality, English-language digital newspaper in the world. That's in the space of only four years that change has happened. 
And that's meant focusing hard on what we're best at and taking tough action. We've sold assets outside our core, we've driven down operational costs, we've reinvested those savings, and that reinvestment has been critical, and we've maximised revenue streams. It's not about just cutting costs to make it work. These didn't feel like hard choices, but opportunities given to us because of the sudden liberalisation of access to news. Moving away from newsstands and broadcasting to a vast array of online platforms meant that we had to fight harder for every reader and fight harder to secure the advertising that helps fund the revenue model. But the opportunities are far greater now. We can access the world in a way we simply couldn't have done as a newspaper product, and that's why it's so exciting. Two-thirds of our readers are outside the UK. Let's be clear, we are far from alone in facing this challenge. Any news publication that wanted to survive has had to respond in its own way to the new digital reality. For others, it's been a very painful process. Many newsrooms continue to be restructured, and it isn't over. In June, The Telegraph let yet another group of long-serving journalists go. They said they were hiring 40 people in the new digital roles, although there's little evidence of their impact yet. Two days ago, they announced a further 55 editorial posts would go. Just the other day, The New York Times let 100 people go. And BBC News has cut over 400 posts with a view to digitally transforming their news operation. Job cuts and cultural change are now an everyday part of an industry getting to grips with a new, harsher ecosystem. Why do I say this ecosystem is harsh? It's harsh because an industry that used to have a linear distribution model no longer has a stable route to market or access to its readers. Without unique content, news organisations face the huge challenge of trying to find an audience amid the perpetual avalanche of 6,000 tweets a second or millions of videos or comments being posted every hour of every day. The ecosystem is made even harder to navigate because in digital media, unlike traditional media platforms such as TV, papers or radio, there is not yet an industry standard. There's no agreed model for how clients can buy the value this reach is worth. There's no standard ABCs, radars or barbs either. Nevertheless, this new system is developing and will rightly include different revenue models. And simply put, at the moment, these revenue models are described as either paywall or open. In the paywall category, there is a spectrum ranging from hard to soft. A hard paywall, adopted by the Times and the Sun, means that the content is only accessible to paying subscribers. It seems to work for them, especially if these are brands playing to local marketplaces, and I applaud them for giving it a go. But going back to my earlier comments about being open, I don't believe it's sustainable in the long term for media organisations to ignore the writing on the wall, excuse the pun, particularly if you want to be in that global conversation. If the likes of Twitter and Facebook teach us anything, it's that you have to put your content in the stream of social media, not outside it. You have to make it accessible to everyone. You have to use it as a means of sharing, enriching, improving your content, and crucially, you have to accept that this is how it will be distributed. Hiding your content, which is your greatest single asset, behind hard paywalls and cutting it off from everyone but your most loyal readers misses the point. It's like a retailer putting its most popular stock on shelves that only the very tallest shopper can reach. After a while, readers will go elsewhere, as will advertisers. And it's also wrong to somehow imply that companies who put their content behind hard paywalls respect that journalism more than those who choose another model. It's precisely because I value our journalism so highly that I want to make sure as many people as possible can read it. Sadly, news isn't scarce enough in the world of BuzzFeed, Twitter or Facebook to charge a premium to get at it. I've also lost count of the number of times I've spoken to journalists whose content sits behind paywalls who complain that their journalism simply withers and dies as a consequence. Good journalism, just like a plant, needs light, oxygen to survive. And paywalls, in my view, block that. Others, like the Financial Times, the Telegraph, the New York Times, and the Economist take a more porous approach. It's a so-called freemium model, which allows a certain number of articles for free to get you hooked before requiring subscription. I think it's a messy and unsatisfactory approach, and it plays more, I think, to their traditional readers than really to new ones. How do you get new people coming in if you hit paywalls? Then there are the open models adopted by ourselves, by the mail, and, excite, and also in a whole bunch of exciting wave of digital startups. We believe in a model that's free to access, funded by advertising and driven by circulation. Some industry players and commentators like to portray this new ecosystem as a, a zero-sum game. One model will win and the other one will lose. But that simply can't be true. 
As long as we live in communities that want to publicly share experiences and communicate, there will always be a place for an alternative to the closed world of private newsgroups. I have faith in the market to ultimately find a model that is open and free, to find a model that enables everyone to benefit from good journalism. I recognise that some of my fellow media CEOs are programmed to attack, but I think some kind of anchorman-style image of Team Paywall locked in the death with Team Open is particularly unhelpful and overblown in the current environment. The digital world is a big, big place. There's absolutely room for both models. But both will survive only if they have premium content and a premium readership that is willing to put a monetary value on it, whatever form that takes. Let me repeat, this industry has no room for complacency. It's sobering, for example, to think that most of the world's biggest news organisations haven't yet fully entered the digital competition yet or turned their guns in our area. What the world's largest and best-funded news organisations have in common is that they are still investing most of their staff, most of their budgets and energy into their extremely expensive 24-7 live TV operations. It's clear that digital digital executives at France TV, Russia Russia Today, Al Jazeera, CNN and China's CCTV, whose budget, by the way, is $9 billion a year, are making the case to abandon their live TV units now and focus instead on the world we're in, on mobile and apps. And while we know about the enormous bureaucracies inside these institutions, are we possibly underestimating at the moment their potential to dominate the ecosystem of this digital journalism in the future? I think so. So, after a period of experimentation, the sector now is an ecosystem of different media distributors, each vying for survival. There are plenty of naysayers out there who are certain we cannot adapt fast enough to keep pace with the relentless change, but I'm glad to say with certainty that we will be among the survivors. And why are we confident? We're now four years into our transformation plan, and earlier this year we reported our strongest set of financial results in GMG's history. It's also been a strong year for the Guardian News and Media team. Our revenues, a third of which came from digital, are up 7% this year. That's a remarkable achievement. We outperformed the New York Times, which saw a modest increase in total revenues, but a significant decline in advertising revenues. The most recent ComScore figures show that, with almost 43 million unique visitors, we've also overtaken the New York Times in terms of desktop traffic. And the rise in digital revenues and the rise in readership is key to our future. And for reasons I've outlined, I firmly believe our open approach will underpin both of those. The Guardian has won and retained readers, readers who seek trusted media brands and excellent content. The latest Ofcom data shows that our website and app are the most trusted news sources in the UK, more so than the BBC. And these represent encouraging signs of audience growth that advertisers will pay for, whether here in the UK or or in our growing reader base in the US and Australia. So much so, in fact, that I'm confident The Guardian will soon expand its reach in the near future with new editions and new bureaus, especially in markets where our style of journalism is more valued than ever. Take Australia, where we launched a local online edition back in May 2013. The media landscape there was a binary choice. Australian readers could choose between titles either from News Corp or Fairfax Media. In comes The Guardian, making Australia a far more diverse and vibrant marketplace, breaking up the duopoly, typically irreverent, securing countless fantastic scoops. Since launching a local digital edition last year, we now have nearly 2 million visitors a month in Australia, up almost 60% in the previous year. For context, that represents almost 20% of the total news market and makes Guardian Australia one of the country's top five newspaper websites, and that's in the space of only 18 months. And we reinvented the business model too. We accepted investment from Graham Wood, one of Australia's most respected philanthropists and entrepreneurs. He neither holds shares nor has a vote. Quite the opposite, in fact. Graham's investment was based on the fact that he wants to add quality and diversity to an Australian media landscape that lacked polarity. Simple as that. No meddling and no influence. It's a model I can envisage and would love to roll out again. We just need to find the next Graham Wood first. <laughs> on the other side of the world, our American operation is thriving. First-rate team and award-winning digital journalism. We're building a very significant online readership in the U.S., No other British title has come close to making such a dramatic mark on the culture of American news. Within two years of arriving, we've won nearly every major award in American journalism, culminating in the Pulitzer Prize. And that's helped us deliver record traffic growth in the US, with 27 million unique monthly users. 
27 million. For context, that represents a 30% year-on-year growth, far exceeding our competitors, and US revenues have also more than doubled on the previous year. And we announced a few weeks ago that we're opening a West Coast office. It's the next stage in our journey and a further commitment to the US. And you have to be realistic, let's face it. A global media organisation without a long-term commitment to the US marketplace simply isn't a global media organisation at all. We have to be present in the US to compete and in some cases cooperate with American outlets that champion quality journalism. One of them, of course, is the Washington Post, and I want to join others who have this week saluted Ben Bradley, the Post former editor-in-chief, as really one of the greatest champions of American journalism. Despite our successes, our global strategy needs to be much more than simply a growing patchwork of regional editions. Besides, at The Guardian, we need to be more ambitious than that too, especially with our English language provenance, which is synonymous with world-class journalism. I see no reason why The Guardian's ambition shouldn't be to create a global media entity that can hold world governments and global corporations to account in the digital space and can do so without being funded by the soft power budget of any political or commercial institution. A user-funded digital media organisation that gives its readers a share of the power, influence and inclusion that the BBC and other media organisations like it simply can't offer. So, as we approach our 200th anniversary, this is how we are securing our future and positioning ourselves to ensure that over the next 200 years, we're even more impactful and relevant. And to wrap up, I've outlined the ways in which The Guardian has pursued a distinct model and has the financial strength to see it through. But as I've said right throughout this talk, there is no room for complacency. We've secured a readership that values our premium content through a mixture of pioneering websites, a reinvigorated newspaper, a bold membership proposition, global expansion, innovative business solutions, a focus on mobile, and above all, everything else, continued investment in quality journalism. Our readers are demanding more of us and we are challenging ourselves to deliver the very best news and analysis in print, online, in video and in all forms of mobile. But those strides will come forward at a cost. We continue to invest in great journalism and use funds at our disposal to grow reach and influence. We are spending on new technologies and on extending our international reach. And at the same time, we must and we do remain focused on tight financial discipline. As well as the measures we are taking, we also need a level playing field in the UK to ensure that the return on investment that we have worked so hard to build is not jeopardised by preferential treatment to other content providers, chief among them, of course, the BBC. Our industry is at a turning point. The British press is honestly in a uniquely strong position. London is the city with more global news brands than any other place in the world. And the world, in turn, is looking to us as the guardians of democracy but this situation is fragile. It needs thoughtful regulation. It needs new forms of cooperation and a polarity of content and distribution models. We are gearing ourselves up for the audience-led industry model. It's no longer now just a matter of newspaper survival. It's a matter of successfully serving each of our readers. We're changing. Others have to do the same. So thanks for your time today, and I look forward to some questions.